morning, everyone. My name's Trey. I'm the pastor here, one of the pastors here. It's great to see you all. Phil, wherever you are, thank you for that beauty. <laughs> thank you so much for that. Let us take a moment again to pray. Oh God, may I speak, may we all act and listen in your name. Amen. I took a sociology class in college, and one week we were talking about gender and sex, and in particular we were talking about all the different ways we had come to understand ourselves and were coming to understand ourselves as people who were sexual, as people with sexualities. And one guy in the class who happened to be a friend of mine from the campus ministry I was part of, he told this story about how when he was about 11 years old, his parents, his Alabama preacher daddy, and his Alabama preacher's wife mama, set him down for, you know, the sex talk. And they said to him, Mark, uh, we love you very much, and so we want, you, we want to talk to you about something really important in the next few years, you're going to start noticing some changes in your body, and you're going to notice some changes in what you're thinking about, and we want you to know this is a normal, natural thing. This is all part of growing up. And as you discover these new things about yourself, we want you to know that we love you, and you can talk to us about anything. Your body might start doing some weird things, and that's okay. In fact, that's good. That's how God made you. You might see something in a, t in a movie or on TV that makes your body do something unexpected. That's okay. You may start to have different feelings for girls. You may start to have different feelings for boys. Either one is good. That's how God made you. As you discover these new things about yourselves, we want you to know that we love you very much, and, either, uh, and, and you can talk to us about anything. Now, he told this story in class at Middle Tennessee State University in 1994, and I just was like, wait, 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 wait. Did anyone else's parents tell them this in detail? <laughs> Nobody. Did any, anybody here, parent, tell them that in detail like that? Uh, parents of the world, future and current, do exactly what Mark's parents did, all right? Mark went on to say that he was grossed out about all of it at the time. <laughs> Because what 11-year-old wants to talk about their body with their parents? But he said, as I've gotten older, I have always remembered that conversation. I have always remembered that my parents had my back. And then as I went through puberty, this crazy thing called puberty, and started becoming a man, and my parents loved me. And that meant so much for me, as I, though I could not talk to them about it at that point. It meant so much to know that they had referenced that, and that memory stayed. And now as I'm a, becoming a, a, uh, an adult, that means even more to me. We started this Some Like It Hot sermon series last week by talking about how sexuality is part of our creation. It is part of how we are put together biologically, okay? And last week we talked about that. Our biology is a significant part of our sexuality. Um, our genetics, our genitals, the neurotransmitters that are coursing through our brains right now or not, the hormones that suffused the amniotic fluid in our parents, our mother's wombs, all of that plays a huge factor in our sexuality. All of that uh, is super significant for our sexuality. But that is not the only thing. Biology is not the only thing that influences our sexuality. In terms of influence, right up there with biology 
are all these social messages and family dynamics and cultural forces that continue to shape us and work on us and, and affect us and even construct us, okay? So biology is the starting point for our sexuality, but it is not the ending point of our sexuality. You know, you know what I'm talking about when I talk about these social forces, right? You know what I'm talking about? All these forces that um, over time try to work on us to convince us of their version of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be transgender, what it means to be gay, what it means to be straight, what it means to be a body. You know what I'm talking about, right? Some of these four, I'm just, just thinking about all these culturally kind of sanctioned uh, ideas, uh, and, and they're all over the place. There are all these different cultures kind of moving and, and trying to shape us. Boys will be boys. Just love that one. Um, uh, what else? Um, what else? Um, what other culturally sanctioned messages have formed us? Love the sinner, hate the sin. Uh, size matters. Sex sells. Check out this cartoon. Right? This is so, like, here, there's the old lady walking by. Yeah, just another Calvin Klein ad, you know. This stuff is so part of our oxygen. So just, just, just throw out other things, other messages, other sources of cultural messages that, that want to teach us about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be gay. Throw them out. A little awkward. It's just like asking who your first crush was. Yeah. What's that? Men don't cry. She was asking for it. Women are too emotional. The weaker sex. One, one more time. Oh, wow. All right. This is stuff that we live with, okay? We laugh because it's uncomfortable, but this is the stuff that we breathe most of the time, all right? And Mark's parents knew they could not compete with that, right? Those forces, some of them are in the order of what Paul called the powers and principalities, right? They have a life of their own. They're not going anywhere. But what Mark's parents wanted to do was to create another culture that would root him, at least that as he walked into that morass of all these cultural messages, he would remember a deeper culture, this family culture they were trying to set up in their family, which, was, which, which for them was also a faith culture, which was to tell him and help him understand and remember that his body is good and has dignity, that others' bodies are good and have dignity, that he has a spiritual, a faith responsibility to care for his own body and a faith responsibility to care for the bodies of those he's in relationship with, both romantic relationships, but every body he is in relationship with, that is a faith, that is a spiritual commitment. They wanted to create a culture that uh, affirmed that sexuality is a good thing, it's nothing to be ashamed of, it's something to ask questions about, it's something to be curious about, and it's not a, a light thing. It is a serious thing, right? That sexuality is both gift and something to be taken very seriously. Did your parents do that? Uh, my parents, sort of. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> there's some probably mixed messages for you. Uh, <laughs> my parents did not um, do it at all. My, I was left to pretty much figure myself out sexually. And um, 
my, I'll tell you what my main resources as an early teen, mid-teen were for figuring myself out sexually. Uh, Saved by the Bell, uh, a, pil a pilfered Playgirl magazine that I had stuffed under my mattress. And let me just tell you, Saved by the Bell and Playgirl magazine are not great ways to learn about bodies. Let me just say that, okay? Um, and something that I actually didn't have, but this book, which was helpful, which was this book, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask. My parents, of course, did not give that to me. But um, back then, we had these things called libraries. You'd go and look things up. And uh, this is all pre-internet, of course. And I would go to the library, and I found the sex section, and I found the Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask book. But I wouldn't, of course, read it, uh, let people see me reading it. I would tuck it inside a larger book and carry it to the back corner of the library where I would read it like this, you know. I'm sure no one had any idea what I was doing, librarians, right? The goal of this sermon series is for each of us and all of us to build or continue to build a mature and rooted Christian sexual ethic. A sexual ethic that will help us, whether we are single, whether we are dating, whether we are married, whether we are intentionally celibate or unintentionally celibate, whether we are divorced or widowed or somewhere in the mix, that will help us navigate uh, our lives and navigate all of our relationships with uh, that, not just romantic ones, but all the relationships we have with bodies, uh, it, with, with a joy, with a grace, with an attentiveness, with a fidelity, with a responsibility. That's what building this huge sexual ethic is. And that's what we're, that's what we're about in this series. And it's not gonna happen in five weeks. And of course, we've all been working on this since the time we became conscious, so don't wanna patronize anybody. Like, it's all live material. But we hope that this sermon series will be, uh, will help us think more deeply about it. A lot of times when we talk about sexual ethics, we think about very rule-based stuff. And I'm, I wanna say, sometimes rules are important and boundaries are good and it's helpful to have guidelines. But sometimes we have so many rules that we don't even examine like why the rules are there, okay? And so last week we talked about how there's a list of questions we're using in this series. I think we got it up here. Last week we talked about how important it is to sort of, at the beginning, sort of just name and get honest, like what do I desire? Uh, we've been told what we should desire, but what do I desire? You know, what do I long for? What do I wish for? What do I want? I mean, to get grabbed, what turns me on, you know? And for some of us, that's easier than others, uh, depending on our formation. But to sort of name that, what do I desire? And that's, that's a question that may, may be easier. Uh, but the second question is one that we rarely really dive into, which is the thing that I desire, why do I desire that? Um, and sure, right, biology is part of why we desire. But what other things have shaped our desire? What other forces, what other family systems what other experiences that we have sought out or experiences that have happened to us that we didn't seek out have shaped the way that we experience ourselves in as a body, have shaped our desire, right? And so we want to we wanna talk about that stuff. <clears throat> we don't usually explore those things. I read this week in research for this sermon from a book I'll quote later about Hugh Hefner, who was the founder of Playboy, obviously. He was interviewed about uh, his life, and he was talking about his parents, and he said that the message he got about sex in his home was um, that it was for procreation only, and everything else that had to do with sex was sinful. And he also observed in his parents, parents who never touched, never showed affection, never showed intimacy toward each other or toward him. 
So you think like, hmm, that maybe, oh, you could see how that may be a little bit of an overcorrection, Hugh, right? Right, so, you know, that, who knows what's in Hugh Hefner's genes, but like surely that experience of, t of learning about what sex was shaped uh, what, what he came to be in charge of, all right? Our scripture today is part of a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Corinth is a Greek port town that at the time Paul was writing to it was under Roman control. You know, lots of, uh, lots of the places that we talk about in the Bible were under the control of the Roman Empire. So there's local cultures that were sort of overseen by this kind of whitewashing or Roman washing kind of Roman power. So most of the cultures we read about in the Bible, lots of them in the New Testament, were this swirl of cultures that were local but also Roman. And so Paul is writing to this town. You may remember, you may not, that Paul was a first century church planter and pastor. He was ministering, starting churches, and ministering and coaching churches that he hadn't started in the generation right after Jesus' birth and life and ministry and death and resurrection. So right after that, Paul's moving around the Middle East, moving around the Mediterranean and doing all this stuff. And some of the letters that he wrote to the congregations, we have, uh, they have been collected by the Holy Spirit, by the church, in the Bible. And so we can read about Paul's instructions to these places, to these congregations. And what we see, among other things in the letters or the epistles, they're called sometimes, from Paul to the churches, is we see the church trying to figure out its new identity. What does it mean? What does it feel like in real life to follow Jesus? In the reality of like my life in first century Corinth, in 21st century Chicago, what does it really mean to be in Christ now, right? And so that's what they're wrestling with, and that's what Paul is trying to help all these different churches. And it turns out that Corinth is different from Ephesus, and Corinth is different from Thessalonica, and that's part of the game, right? We're all in different contexts. That's true here. We have all, we have 100 people here today. There are probably 100 different experiences, right? So we're trying to sort it out. And that's why sexual ethics, that are sort of, in my opinion, that sort of approach ethics by like, do this, do this, do this, don't really take into consideration the huge uh, swath of experience uh, that, that, that humanity is. So some of the, the, the letters that Paul wrote to these, these, um, these churches, in them we see Paul saying that to follow Jesus is a profoundly countercultural thing. All right? Sometimes Paul seems to be saying, yeah, if we follow Jesus, we will resist and even renounce some of the cultural paradigms that we have come to accept as, as real. So, for example, this week, the Pope says to the Congress, we must, uh, we must end um, capital punishment globally, right? And some people were like, yes, and other people were not sitting on their hands, right? To me, this is my opinion, you can always push back on just one preacher, as I always say. To me, that's an example of where we are called to be countercultural. The, the culture says violence is the way to solve things. Jesus says absolutely not, never, okay? So that's countercultural. But there are times also, Paul says, it seems, that following Jesus means that we are actually called to embrace culture. That culture is not always something to be sort of kicked away or resisted, but sometimes a gift comes from a culture uh, that we are meant to be at least embedded in contextually and understand, but sometimes there's even a gift from culture. The, to discern between when we're called to be countercultural and in the culture is quite complicated. Welcome to being a follower of Jesus. It's not always black and white. You actually have to think about things and pray through things and, you know, talk to human beings. Um, this is how it goes. 
Our passage from Paul's first letter today to the Corinthians actually quotes something. Uh, the first line of it is a quote from this predominant uh, Greco-Roman culture. You may not have recognized it, but it's in quotes. So his first line is, did you hear it? What does he say? I think it, I, got, I got it up here. All things are lawful to me. Another, another translation of that is, all things are permissible to me. Or another translation says, I can do anything I want. All right? This is a quote from Corinthian culture. So when, they, when Paul's referring to this, Paul's quoting Corinthian culture, when they, heard, when they saw that in the letter, imagine the letter being read in church, uh, they would have been like, they would have known exactly what that meant. Right? That would be like us. I mean, I don't know what the analog would be like. Just do it, or YOLO, or follow your bliss, or, you know, uh, think different, whatever it is. Like, YOLO is a perfect example, Rachel, thank you. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, oh, everyone knows exactly what that means, you know, you know. They would have seen that and been like, oh, yeah, Paul's, like, not countercultural. Paul's, like, saying, yeah, everything is permissible. Everything is permissible. Everything is lawful. I can do anything I want. Just I want to say, I love that Paul quotes cultural references. He does this throughout his writing. I love that he does, because Paul gets, Paul is an evangelist, Paul is someone who actually likes human beings, he gets that most people um, are not cloistered in a monastery away from the internet all the time. Most people uh, do not, are not reading their Bibles 24-7. Most people are, let's be honest, watching Netflix, right? Uh, I am. And Paul gets that, right? And so he's like quoting this cultural reference. People be like, oh yeah, I saw that on whatever, Buffy. I mean, that's... Also dating myself. Uh, that's really dating myself. So he quotes this cultural assumption, and he doesn't actually disagree with it, but he does qualify it. He invites the church to reflect. This is the accepted cultural paradigm. You can do anything you want to. But is there any nuance for those of us who follow Jesus? All things are lawful to me, but he says, not everything is beneficial. Another way to say it is, I can do whatever I want, which is totally true. You can. But not everything is healthy. <laughs> Paul then repeats that with a different qualification. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be controlled by anything. I will not be run by anything. That's one of the things we're trying to uncover in this sermon series on, as we build a sexual ethic. Where are we as individuals, where are we as a church being dominated or run or controlled by some culture or cultures or people or institutions uh, that are trying to uh, control the way we understand our bodies? Uh, where are we being run or controlled or dominated by things that are not the gospel? And that's one of the questions that we're asking ourselves today is, what are things that are running me um, that are not the gospel? Uh, what are things that are shaping me? There's a saying related to you can do anything you want, uh, which is related to another first century idea that was deeply, deeply rooted in the culture. This is actually from Plato, who was writing two or three or four centuries before Paul's letter. And Plato wrote this, Soma Sema. <clears throat> Remember that old um, John Meyer song? Um, your body is a wonderland. That's also dating myself. That's like 2000, right? <clears throat> Plato's song was a little different. His was, uh, your body is a prison. Right? 
Your body is a tomb. That's, that's what's playing on the radio in first century Corinth, all right? Um, that's what soma sema means. Your body is a prison. Your body is a tomb. Plato believed, and this has extremely influenced Western civilization. You remember that from college. Plato believed that the real you is not your body. The real you is the essence, whatever that is, that's trapped inside the prison of your body, uh, the tomb of your body, that will one day, the essence will be released. Um, and so what follows is, if your body is only a tomb, if your body is only a prison, if your body is only meat, then it really doesn't matter all that much what you do with it. Because at the end, it's just a tomb. So do what you want with your body. Do what you want to your body. Help. Do what you want with other people's bodies. Do what you want to other people's bodies. This has a huge, huge formative influence on sex, but also on slave trades, on how we value other people's bodies and work. So we're like, oh, it doesn't matter, really. The body's just a tomb. The body's just a piece of meat. So all that matters is what happens after we die. So don't worry about it. Do whatever. Everything's up for grabs, literally. <laughs> do what you want. Paul's like, not everything's healthy. <laughs> Paul actually had a very different understanding of the body from Plato. I just want to do a quick assessment. Look, this is not a moral category necessarily. I'm just curious, quick survey. This is not as uncomfortable. How many of you would say, I have a body? How many of you would say, I am a body? So have a body, am a body. If you have a body, who says, I have a body? Who says, I am a body? All right? So an even split, right? This is part of sexual ethic, is figuring out what is this? It's a very good question, right? Like, um, Paul would be definitely in the latter camp. Paul is, and, and actually this is quite Jewish, and the trajectory of the Christian, uh, the Christian thought, actually. Here's the thing. Plato got woven a lot into our philosophy and our church structure, so sometimes it's hard to separate out Plato from, like, you know, Jesus. Uh, but, and that's our, that's our work as theologians. But, uh, Paul had this idea that actually we are bodies. A body is a way of talking about our whole selves, actually. The body is a way of talking about our full selves. This makes sense to you if you think about it. Why is Paul moving around the Mediterranean planting churches? Because he has experienced the creator of the universe uh, meet him in a body, in the body of Jesus. So like, oh, I wonder if the incarnation actually means something about whether bodies are important. I wonder if the resurrection from the dead in which God raised Jesus' body up in some mysterious way to heaven, that into the heavenly realm a human body goes. I mean, that's really weird stuff. But you can't say, I mean, it's really weird. But one thing you, you have to say about it is like, oh, bodies are valued there, right? Not just Jesus' body, but if we say the creed, which we rarely do, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, here's where it gets really weirder. That's not actually referring just to Jesus' body. That's referring to what our bodies, our bodies will be raised up. Now, what does that mean? Lord, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> but I do know, I do believe that what that signals to us is that our bodies, our skinny bodies, our big bodies, our hairy bodies, our smooth bodies, our black bodies, our brown bodies, our white bodies, our bodies with HIV, our bodies with arthritis, our bodies that we love, our bodies that we have a hard time looking at the mirror, those are the terrain that God meets us and is actually in some deeply psychosomatic way thoroughly suffused in us, in those bodies. 
So, Paul said, uh, you're not a tomb. You're not a prison. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That is Paul's metaphor to get at this thing um, that we are, which is different from uh, a tomb. We are the place where God is thoroughly suffused. We are the place where God shows up. That is a countercultural statement then, and that is a countercultural statement now. So Rob Bell wrote a book. Lord, I mean, me, this sermon's going everywhere. Um, <laughs> let me just say this. I'm going to close it up. I'm going to close it up. Uh, Rob Bell wrote a book. All right, all right, I'll go there. This is a book called Sex God, and he actually got this idea from Walker Percy, who's this excellent writer. But Rob Bell wrote a book and said, sort of thinking more about like these cultures that have shaped us. He said that he can identify two extreme cultures, or Percy did. One's called angelism, which is this idea that we actually don't need uh, connection, we don't need touch, we don't need embrace, we don't need physicality because we're angels. We are. This is a, a you know this is one a culture, right? Often this is foisted upon women in the church. You know, you don't. It doesn't matter what women desire. You're just because because what it means to be holy is to let go of your de desire and detach from that, especially for women. Uh, that's angelism. You don't need connection. You don't need. That's one extreme. The other extreme is what uh, Percy calls and Bell beautifully uh, elaborates on, which is called bestialism, not bestiality, but bestialism. And this is this idea. It's just like social Darwinism, which basically you are an animal. You're not an angel, but you're an animal. And you know what? Animals, all we are is like this quivering collection of instincts and evolutionary drives. And you know what? Because you're an animal, you deserve, you, you just get it. Get, get it. Get it wherever you can. Get it from anything you can. And you deserve it. It's what you do. It's what you are because you're an animal, right? You're, that's that's bestialism, right? I don't know if you watch the nature, nature programs. I love nature programs, right? You see the wildebeest chasing the other wildebeest, right? Uh, get it, get it, get it. That wildebeest is not like, I want to love you and care for you and take care of you, right? right? Uh, so Bell's like, it's so interesting that in the church, we, in society, we often sort of fall into one of those camps, like either angels or beasts. But what we are is actually something profoundly different from those things. We are human. We are human beings. We are the place where flesh and spirit are inextricably, inextricably woven together, and maybe always will be. This is, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Right? What does that truth, how does that truth change the way we think about our sexual ethics? That I am, I am this body, I am a temple of the Holy Spirit, you are in your body a temple of the Holy Spirit, you are, you are, all bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. What would that do to our sexual ethic to always consider that truth? So that um, as we think about joy, as we think about grace, as we think about fidelity, as we think about responsibility and curiosity, they are, we are always remembering that the bodies, the humans that we are in relationship with are temples of the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about uh, fornication. I'm not skipping over that. Well, I guess I am. Uh, people who use that, that word is actually in Greek, porneia, porneia, and it gets translated different ways. 
one scholar says it usually gets trans, you can tell what the, what the translator thinks about sexual ethics by how she or he translates the word porneia, because it's translated in different places in different ways, so it's like a cipher. So it's fornication, adultery, homosexuality, right? Oh, I wonder if someone has an agenda, right? Porneia is anything that distracts us from the truth that all bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Pornea is anything that invites us to think of a body as something to use for our own devices. Our bodies or the bodies that we're in relationship with. And so Paul says, flee from pornea. Flee from the thing. Flee from anything that would try to convince you that you are anything and that others are anything but temples of the Holy Spirit. Bodies which God has created and is raising up with Jesus into eternity. What would it be like to live like that? Ah, freedom, joy, deep responsibility. We're going to dive in in more uh, weeks ahead. But um, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen.